Welcome to the History Today podcast. In this edition, the editor Paul Lay talks to historian and commentator on global affairs Michael Burley about his new book, The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, A History of Now. The November issue of History Today is out now, and to find out more, visit historytoday.com forward slash magazine. Well, we're joined today by the distinguished historian and commentator Michael Burley, whose new book, The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, is described as a history of now. Um, Michael, we start the book, I suppose, in late 80s, early 90s, um, inspired, I presume, by the old end of history thesis, that moment in history when we thought liberal democracy was going to be the victor for all eternity, and sunlit uplands were ahead for us all. Um, But then 9-11 happened, 2003 Iraq war happened, and then the 2008 crash. What are the challenges of writing a history of now? Um, Well, the the biggest challenge you've already alluded to, which is where do you start? And that's in a sense is how long does a piece of string have to be? And uh, some people have said to me, well, why didn't you start with 9-11? But actually, I've written books on terrorism, and there's a lot on 9-11. So I thought, no, I don't want to do that, which actually, for younger people, it must be almost ancient history nowadays anyway. So then I thought, well, what are the two seminal events, in, in both in terms of our economy and in terms of uh, world affairs? And I thought, well, it's the invasion of Iraq and all the chaos that ensued from that. And then the 2008 financial crisis, which many countries haven't recovered from. So I began really there and then took it up to, um, I was still writing it about three weeks ago. So it is very much a history of now then. Yeah. Now the cover is a revealing one. We've got the newly uh, extra empowered Chinese premier there, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. Um, what does that tell us about the world? Well, it's the first cover of a book of mine where I'm, I'm entirely satisfied that the cover conveys exactly what the book wants to uh, do. So on the top, you've got almost like a radiant sun. You've got Xi Jinping. Next down, you've got Vladimir Putin looking a bit shifty and not uh, not his normal Mr. Macho image with shades. And then right down at the bottom with what, what looks like a lot of caked-on TV makeup, you've got Donald Trump in in almost darkness and semi-profile, so you can read into that what you want. But, I mean, the, the point of the photographs and, of course, of the book is to trace um, what I think is going on, which is the gradual um, decline of American power and the ascendancy of Chinese power, although I, I stress that I don't, don't believe that's necessarily going to... doesn't have to be a conflictual relationship. And, you know, a lot of what has been... First of all, it takes it takes two sides to be provocative in any situation and then secondly um, being assertive is not the same as being aggressive if you see what I mean so that's one theme of the book the second thing which is the title um, obviously um, it's from uh, the first sentence of Charles Dickens's Tale of Two Cities but what I'm actually quoting is, is the fact that Xi Jinping was the first Chinese leader to go to Davos last January and he did refer to Um, that very phrase, you know, the best of times, the worst of times, except, of course, he was talking about the impact of globalisation rather than um, Dickens, who was talking really about the Industrial Revolution, because the Dickens book is, on one level, a novel about the French Revolution, 
but at the same time it's about the industrial revolution and to just take one point out of this take one important point out of it which is that the industrial revolution i know it was very bumpy and distressing for lots of people and they ended up doing terrible jobs and in factories and so on but by the end of that process it leads to us sitting in this room doing you doing your job me doing my job and it's all fine and society you know the workforce has adapted to it of course it wasn't so good for horses you know hundreds of millions of which went to the knacker's yard mm. because horses were no longer required and in a way if you look at what she was talking about about globalization because of the uh, the onset of um, you know what's called the fourth industrial revolution there'll be more resort to artificial intelligence to robots and we don't know whether some of us are going to go the way of the horses or whether it will all ultimately work out fine and we'll be in a complementary relationship to machines so the book just to summarize that series of thoughts the book is first of all <clears throat> about you know straightforward geopolitical shifts which in a way are my equivalent of Dickens writing about the French Revolution, mm -hmm. but then secondly, the profound sort of undercurrents going on, uh, which you know are related to the to the geopolitics, but they're they're going to long outlast everybody on the front of my book. And there's also a, a suggestion, I suppose, on the cover, of what you might call a gold, silver, and bronze position. There, I mean, there is a lot of talk of China at the moment, and we've seen a lot of analysis in in, in particular after the recent. Uh, conference but is is our perception that china is particularly advanced in understanding this this fourth industrial revolution is that a correct um, yeah i think that's judgment i think that's totally correct i think they've really got a handle on this i mean they're, they're about to spend about 125 billion dollars on robots and uh you know they've been going around the world with a shopping list and they bought for example the most sophisticated german um, robotics company cooker they bought that last year and their intention is that the robots are going to be made in China. Uh, so, yes, they're getting really into it. And if we look at this, one of the things that, one of the troubling aspects of this book and the survey there is the relative decline of liberal democracy, indeed, democracy generally. I mean, we, we have China, we have Russia, which is hardly uh, a mature democracy. We see everything that's happening in, mm -hmm. in Turkey. And, of course, the relative decline of the United States and certainly Europe. Mm -hmm. um, are we moving towards a post-democratic world? Well, I think certainly there have been uh, opinion poll surveys, and it's quite, quite depressing in a way that young people in particular seem to be um, not so enthused about, about a democratic model. I mean, one should be slightly cautious because um, much as I admire, for example, the ability of the people who run China to think very strategically and in, in the long term, you know, they obviously, these are not stupid people. And they've, they're more to the point, unlike our politicians, these men have been sort of stress tested in a succession of more difficult tasks. So you could be posted to run Tibet three million Tibetans, or you could be sent to a medium-sized province, which will be roughly the size of Spain, say 45 million people, or you could go to a big city which has got 120 million people in it. So, um, you know, by the time you get to the top in that system, you've really um, done some work, as it were, and know lots of uh, things. But, so that's one problem. I mean, we've also, I think, just gone through a phase where um, both institutions and um, what you might call the essential experts without whom 
our societies don't function too well, be it judges or scientific experts or academics or whatever, uh, and politicians, of course, they've all taken a massive knock. You know, people do not have much confidence in, in them anymore. And that's obviously very different from what's going on in China and some other places. Where that confidence in the ruling elite remains, presumably. Where it remains, yes. Yeah. And do you think that's true of Russia as well? I say in the book that, for example, they have um, an exceptionally talented foreign service. You know, the foreign ministry seems to be to be very, very able. But um, I would say that, um, you know, that there is a fundamental problem there, which is that President Putin is just simply presiding. He's like a type of uh, man holding a balance. He's a broker of power, which is in the hands of largely oligarchs or security officials, and his job is to take away or to give and you know that's what he does. It, it suits everybody to have him there. Whether that remains the case as he heads into his dotage, because he's, you know, if he's re-elected next um, spring, he will. He's already surpassed the record of Leonid Brezhnev, but he'll be on route to, on the way to replacing the record of Stalin. Mm-hmm. And people might get slightly fed up with it and look around for somebody else. But there isn't really anybody else at the moment. Let's have a look at the structure of the book yeah. um, in terms of what, what we have is it was an, it's a quite formatted book in terms mm-hmm. of uh, one gets used to the uh, to the writing style one gets used to the historical surveys that are mm-hmm. there the choice of topics here in terms of starting with the Gulf we look at ISIS we look at Turkey and we look elsewhere and then it expands to what you might call the big three Russia, China mm-hmm. and the United States um, and Europe but tell us about the way you structured that and your thinking behind that structure. Well, you know, you have, when you write a book because you, you, you think, well, it's going to be X number of pages and this is what I'm going to do. So first of all, um, you know, Latin America and Africa went out, out the window effectively. So it's very much a Northern Hemisphere book, so to speak. And uh, in a sense, it's quite a classical focus, which is it's the existing great powers. Um, what I did do, I mean, apart from... Um, trying to integrate as much history as I thought I needed to explain the context for people who'd never picked up a book on China or Russia or Iran or whatever. I also decided to to intersperse the narrative with with um, things which you, I suppose you could have put them in boxes, but they're too long, which take a deeper look at some of the issues I'm raising. So, for example, um, when I'm talking about Donald Trump, I um, explain quite how he became such a celebrity. Well, first of all, what he did in the property world, which is to put his name on things, and then how he became a celebrity through, um, you know, The Apprentice Show, and uh, to look at the relationship between the production of TV and politics. And I'm quite interested in that, 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 that in a way pol- politicians are almost creatures of anonymous TV producers. So I've done this again and again. So then you know, if we're talking, I don't know, about China's external relations with its immediate Asia-Pacific neighbours, uh, there are clearly ongoing maritime disputes. And I explain precisely what those are about, which is not just oil and gas or whatever, or questions of national prestige, but, but actually they're about fish protein. And, you know, people probably haven't thought much about the fact that the Chinese consume vast amounts of seafood and fish. And uh, there you are, you have it. At the end of the, the book, you do consider ways out of this, um, what you call post-populist politics, which seems to be the ideology of our time, at least in uh, so-called advanced countries. 
you're quite full of praise for Macron, for example, in terms of what he's trying to do, the Marche movement. Did you become more optimistic, having written the book, or more pessimistic? Oh, I'm a pretty optimistic person. A friend of mine calls me a eupeptic pessimist, which means a happy pessimist. <laughs> um, uh, I, I would say uh, I think there are... Um, there are ways in which... I mean, the, the basic problem is that the political class is not talking the same language as a lot of the voters. Mm-hmm. That's the essential thing. It's a dialogue of the deaf. So if somebody turns up on your doorstep in, I don't know, um, somewhere in Norfolk and says, you know, what would you like to talk about? And they say, well, it's it's um, the number of Polish migrants in my high street and all these Polish shops don't like it, don't like it. Things have changed, you know, too much. It's not where I lived and then if your response is to say well yes you know globalization is a complex thing mr jones or mr smith and uh, however it brings inestimable benefits as well you're not actually really having a conversation addressing that person's deep-seated fears and anxieties about their identity etc etc so one needs politicians who are capable of doing that without succumbing to i mean that you see the, the thing is that there's also an ambient change, which in a way is to do with the pervasiveness of social media, that there's a type of mobocracy out mm-hmm. there uh, waiting to, to pounce and to you know, activate itself. And that, of course, is deeply worrying, and nobody should be pandering to that. So it's a, in a way, we need politicians of a far higher calibre than the ones we've currently got, who really can think about you know, what, what trends and tendencies are afoot, what the mood is, and how to, how to play it. Let me ask you the big question. Is there enough room in this world for the United States and China as superpowers? There is a big difference between a country being assertive or indeed in in claiming um, rights of exceptionalism, which of course America has claimed throughout its entire history. You know, the Americans like imposing um, rules and norms on other people, which they then promptly don't sign up to themselves. I mean, like the International Criminal Court... Um, war crimes court and I also think they're not members of the um, UN Convention on the Laws of the Sea China actually is uh, which is there's some ironies in that a friend of mine describes it as being like um, you know you've got a you have a lift an elevator and there's a very fat guy in it called Mr America and along comes another equally fat guy called Mr China who's going also wants to be in that lift and this could potentially you know, become very um, dangerous. And there are certainly vested interests, but there are people in America who um, you know, they would actively see and want a conflict with China before it gets too strong. And there are big industrial, if you think about it, there are big industrial interests which are involved in this. So just think for a second. I mean, what's called the Green Army doesn't cost much. I mean, most of its costs are actually in wages and pensions and healthcare costs. And it, a machine gun doesn't cost a lot or a hand grenade. But any war with China would be an air-sea war. And these are huge, costly defence platforms like submarines, carriers, you know, the Joint Strike Fighter, etc., etc., and very sophisticated missiles. So the, the defence companies have obviously got an interest in talking up a war with China because they're going to be earning a lot, a hell of a lot more from a submarine than they are from a machine gun or an armoured personnel carrier. That's just a fact. So really, uh, there are also lots of people in the Pentagon who are actively planning for such a conflict, again, before China gets to the point where, I mean, at the moment, it can certainly deter America, 
but you know what happens 10 20 years down the line now my personal view on it is that um, China is much more inwardly focused than anybody thinks. It's very much focused on itself. So if you take its three intelligence services, 80% of their time, and that includes their equivalent of MI6 or the CIA, is focused on China, Mm. on the domestic population. When they think of abroad, they think of their westerly province, Xinjiang, they think of Tibet, they think of Taiwan, they think of Hong Kong. Then they think about what's beyond that. And the idea that they're somehow, you know, want to take over the world, why would they? Because the, the power of their investment, their money, you know, their, their soft power, actually, which is growing, given that the American president is damaging American soft power with every single tweet and with every day, you almost put your head in your hands thinking, what's he going to do next? It's quite effortless for China to slip into that and also to become a good citizen, as it were, in the institutions that the Americans are abandoning mm. on climate change, um, uh, you know, on uh, the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership. They've given up on all this, and China can really just walk in there with its soft power. And one of the very strong themes you have in this book is that you emphasise the importance of diplomacy over that of the military, I think, again and again and again, that particularly in the United States, there is this military party, if you like, yeah. um, that wants to emphasise uh, aggression. Mm. Uh, there's even aspects of protectionism there, I suppose. It is surely striking that there are uh, three generals in at the very top of Trump's administration. Now, personally, I find that very worrying. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people say, oh, well, they're the adults in the room, you know, plus the former oil executive Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State. But actually, um, you know... <sighs> One wonders what... I mean, I actually, I know uh, uh, H.R. McMaster's. I've known him for some time, the National Security Advisor. He's a very nice, very smart man who was in charge of Pentagon future war planning before he took this job. But, you know, their experiences have bearings on some of the decisions that are being made. So, for example, they all were involved in uh, the war in Iraq enthusiastically, and they all... Uh, had troops who were killed or maimed by Iranian Revolutionary Guard supplied um, improvised explosive devices. So they have views of Iran, which are pretty negative. Now, I'm not sure, really, they're the best people to be determining policy towards Iran. Um, There's more disruption to come, I'm sure. Um, But as a primer to our current predicaments, I think Michael Burley's wonderful book, The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, A History of Now, is as good as it gets, and it's out on the 2nd of November, published by Macmillan. Thank you, Michael.